The following podcast is a part of RadioMisfits.com. From the birthplace of modern winemaking, Sonoma, California, welcome to the winemakers. Local experts Sam Katuri, Bart Hansen, and Brian Casey, along with host John Myers, invite you to listen in as they discuss all facets of winemaking. So sit back, pour yourself a glass, and let's hear what the guys have to say this week. Sure. I want to hear that bottle opening. Always a good sign of good times to come. Hey, everybody. I'm John Myers, and we are the winemakers. And, uh, oh, boy, we've got plenty of guests today. Jeez, Morgan Peterson, Morgan Twain Peterson, Chris Cottrell, Mr. How are you, Mr. Katuri? I'm I'm good. Yeah. Okay, that's that's good. Ha- happy to be here. I'm Mr. Katuri is I'm, Phil. I'm, Mr. Katuri <laughs> is my grandfather. He's in <laughs> and and Bart Hansen, and of course uh, Brian Casey. Actually, so. Mrs. Katuri was my grandmother at Bret Hart Elementary, and I used to t- you know, next so, to Candlestick Park. And <laughs> yeah, somebody says thank you, sir. It's it's like no, that was my old man. So, all right, I'm going to hand this over to Brian Casey. I'm getting out of here. Um, you guys are taking over the show for a few weeks, and. I'm on sort of special Woo-hoo! special the inmates of yes. taking over yes. the asylum. So right. hey, uh, we'll we'll do what we can, and uh, this building will not be standing in three yeah. weeks. Yeah, that's <laughs> I, I know. And you know, um, I don't know how many bottles you've already opened, but you're gonna have fun. Eight almost, nine? all right, almost Brian, enough. take it away. Only one tenth of the number of wines we actually make. <laughs> yes, yeah, seriously. Uh, We're gonna need yeah, a bigger right. table. Right. <laughs> all right, and if it's all right, I. I want to open the show by starting at the very beginning, because Morgan, I heard that although both your parents were working at a hospital, you were actually born at home. I was, and yes. And what, what was that conversation like? I mean, I was still in the womb, so I have no idea what that conversation <laughs> I mean, I mean, was I mean, like. With your, I mean, with your parents, how, who starts that conversation? Uh, well, they're both nonconformist hippies at heart, so I think that, uh, you know, I will say that when... I was born, we were living on Andrew Street, less than a block from the hospital. So if you're going to have a home birth, this was about as low risk of a situation as you can. So, But it is fun because like the um, woman who was acting essentially as the midwife at my birth um, is still very good friends. She's on the mailing list. Um, the doctor that was there still lives so in Sonoma. One of the on Sonoma the midwives? So one of the no, it was actually Francine oh, uh, right. Morissette, so Pascal and Ico Sophie's yeah, mom. But she's, okay. um, she's and a, the insider Sonoma. Right. And, Sonoma and we just lost her. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, everybody, but she's a maternity mom. nurse. At I feel bad for being from Petaluma now. Right, yeah. <laughs> Shame. <laughs> and is that, was that a doula? Is that what they call one of those people that comes over to your house? And That's a whole other level of... Yeah, business. I don't think they went okay. as yeah. in-depth as yeah. that, but I mean... I, Interesting wine podcast you guys right. have here. <laughs> so, yes, I will say... John that, walks out of the room and we go way off the rails. So, the most notable thing about that, and I think that this actually applies to the first wine that we're drinking, is um, the first thing before Mother's Milk that went over my lips was 1974 Tattinger Comte de Champagne. No, 75 or 76. Sorry, 76. <laughs> 76, yeah. Wow. Sorry. Yeah. Um, Didn't make 74. I, actually, I, I think we need, we need to... Dig into that a little bit. You can't just in like throw that one. Seventy six comps. Grab a bottle and I'm like, game. Were well, yeah, that too. Um, that's a more interesting conversation between your parents than whether or not you're born at home. I think. Right. 
Champagne was the first thing you ever had in your yes. mouth. I think they just dabbled it on my lips or something like that. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure, but, you know, which is equivalent of like three glasses when you're it's a true. minute old. I probably had a good time. I probably slept really well that first night. So We still see the effects today. Yeah, so. exactly. Signed, sealed, and delivered. He still only wants to drink expensive champagne yeah, today. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's really true. The legend of Morgan continues. I imagine him, I imagine his crib being a... Uh, a wine barrel that was sawed in half and then uh, put some some straw in it or something. Yeah, it was pumice. There was, there, yeah. you know, it, was, it was out of the press. They fluffed it up a little bit. Right. What time of year were you born? <laughs> so, What's your birthday? January 6th. Oh, so it was... Some serious extended maceration going yeah. on. So. <laughs> uh, I mean, we joke about it, but um, you did make your first wine at 6 Five. Five. Yeah, uh, so I've been told. Um, no, so that was uh, pretty amazing, and actually we're really close yeah, to Yeah, we're right down the street you, from... From the vineyard that I, I worked with, but um, in 1986, I guess I told my dad that I wanted to make wine and I wanted to make Pinot Noir. He asked me why I wanted to make Pinot Noir. Because there's this movie that's going to come out yeah. in 25 <laughs> years, and I, we're all going to be rich. Yeah. <laughs> there's going to be this guy named Paul Giamatti. <laughs> 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 the Messiah myths continue. Right. <laughs> um, no, apparently I was just being a little snot, and he's asked why I wanted to make Pinot Noir, and I just said, because you swore you'd never make it. <laughs> um, but it was, um, which, you know, seems fitting with my personality, I guess. Yeah, I was going to say, <laughs> having known Morgan since that time, it's uh, true. <laughs> that's absolutely, you know, I, I'm glad he said it first, but that's totally how you describe five-year-old Morgan. <laughs> I was wondering, you, you guys have known each other since you were that old? This we, is going to be a rare podcast, and Sam and I have known each other for a very long time. Yeah, uh, I mean... Preschool, yeah. kindergarten, wow. Montessori out on A Street. Yeah. You know, he was a couple year, you know, couple level, you know, he was like on the bigger swing set than I was. Right. Um, I mean, still would be because I can't reach the bigger swing set. But <laughs> did, did he ever push you off the swing set? No, you know, Morgan, uh, Morgan's uh, nev- not physically aggressive in that way. He just <laughs> would talk you off the swing set going, you know, you're not, you're not, you're not cool enough, smart enough for this swing set. <laughs> I'm in. My, I'm in the. You know. I'm reading like five letter words. You're on three letter words. Uh, you're my harassment was definitely in the intellectual <laughs> bullying sort. Totally. So. Still is this bad. Yeah. <laughs> As his business partner. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You poor thing. You have to deal with it every day. Oh uh, no, no. Um, yeah. So, anyways. Uh, so the coming out of the Pinot Noir story. The, so basically, um, Angelus and Giacomo, who's a local grower that everybody knows. Um, basically volunteered to give me a half a ton of Pinot Noir um, for free, and he gave it to me for was it free. Second crop? Was it? No. It was first. It was the first crop, and it was uh, from the tiny little block right next to their offices. And so what would happen is my the Ravenswood building um, was right there. Was right there, days, and yeah. so Angela was actually their land the landlord. And I would be able to like go off on my bike and like ride over to the offices and like pester Angelo. Angelo apparently always knew when I was coming in because there was this high, um, there, a high divider between the front door and the rest of the office, and the door would open, but no, no, I was so short that they couldn't <laughs> see me, and so then Angelo would just know that I was about to like <laughs> get into his office. Um, but he was great. He actually like gave me devoted rows so I could actually monitor the vineyard throughout like the growing season he would like walk the rows with me um i mean the san giacomos are like class acts and so and you know i think that 
that um, and it's really also is a, a brilliant way to occupy a precocious five year old. Oh my god! Like, oh, hey, how's your, how's your vineyard rose looking, Morgan? Yeah, exactly. Go run, go run around in the vineyard. Yeah, I'm sure my dad's <laughs> like, why don't you go say hi to Angelo? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and Angelo's like, oh uh, yeah, he's gonna send him over here. Here, Morgan, yeah, have yeah, a half a ton exactly. of grapes. <laughs> You did offer up your piggy bank, though, didn't I you? Did. Yeah. I did. Yeah, I, I gave him, I, I offered him like 10,000 lire, which yeah. is like $5 in Italian <laughs> currency at the time. So, And I'm sure Angelo was just like, man, I'm Italian Catholic. I already had enough kids. <laughs> <laughs> what are you sending this kid over for? <laughs> uh, it's good wine, though. Yeah, good wine. It's still there's still some of the Bambino Pinot Noir it exists, right? It is. It is. Uh, we've got like a couple of cases of each of the vintages. But what's cool is that original 1986 um, was on the opening list at Blue Hill in New York, uh, along with the 91. And then uh, so this was made. I mean, it was made under the Bond. It was like it was made. It was legit. So it was made under the Ravenswood Bond. We like played around with a bunch of stuff. Like in '86, we were going 100% whole cluster, um, and you know, playing Inspired around. Inspired by Demain Dujac after yeah, the tasting. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Now, mind you, 1986 was my first harvest, and I didn't even understand what they did with the clusters. From the <laughs> um, yeah, we are. By the way, 100% whole cluster on Pinot. Generally, too much. Uh, <laughs> well, it survived. Uh, it's, yeah, 30 the, the some wine, odd years, right? Exactly. That one was not friendly in its youth. Uh, as a psalm, talk about about a wine I can sell at the table. This was made by a five-year-old. Five <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Who's experimenting with whole clusters? We'll take two bottles. <laughs> yeah. Um, but you made it until you were 19? 20. Until essentially uh, after my first year in college because I was on the East Coast yeah. and couldn't be here during harvest. So, uh, yeah. And so 2001 was the last and year. you actually went down to New York and sold it, right? We did. So when I was working at um, the year between... High school, and when I started college in upstate New York, I worked at um, Chelsea Wine Vault in Manhattan, and the owner actually allowed me to put on a tasting for um, a bunch of different psalms. And, like, of course, when you're, like, 18 years old and you just don't know any better, and you go and you invite, like, every top psalm in the city, it was kind of a miracle that some of them actually showed up. But it was crazy because I was, like, having this event in the basement of Chelsea Wine Vault, and Paul Greco from Gramercy Tavern walks in. Ned Benedict, who was at Oriole at the time, walks in. Lawrence um, Kramer, was that his name? From uh, Mesa Grill, like, all these people, just John Slover from Blue Hill. Um, who are now legends in the New York psalm game. OGs. Oh, um, like, came in and right, you don't even look. see those people on the streets of New York anymore. No, no, they're, no. They're, they, they're not they're not buying wine. I'm like, <laughs> I go to New York and so I don't know any of these names. Ned Benedict actually only exists if you see his reflection in a mirror at this point. <laughs> <laughs> so love you, Ned. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I think I have a Paul Greco t shirt. Does that like sound like something that turned like, like, like a, a Terroir in New York <laughs> with the, yeah, his yeah, face yeah. on it somewhere? Yeah, like a Riesling yeah, t shirt. <laughs> you guys, what is it that we're drinking? Oh so I'll let Chris talk about under the wire because this is uh he is. Our, under T wire, under T wire on Hashtag Instagram. Under T wire, um, under the wire, sparkling Chardonnay. Um, we actually Morgan and I started under the wire in 2011 um, when I was still in New York um, as a fine rare wine trader slash buyer. Um, and he called me up and was like, "Hey, I want to make a wine with you." I had been already coming out working harvest with him when he, we were still at the chicken coop at Bedrock, and. I was like, well, he's like, what do you want to make? I want to make wine with you. And we kind of floated around a couple ideas, including like an old school petite sera. But then I landed on, I really want to make sparkling wine. Because when we first met, 
we both really had a love for sparkling wine. Of course, it started at Morgan's first, second. Yeah, order. right. Mine was right. a little bit later. I was raised on Coors Light and milk. <laughs> yeah. What I love, uh, they weren't pouring. They weren't pouring. Yeah, there was not a lot of champagne <laughs> over your lips in Staten Sta- Island. No, there was not a lot of Comte de Champagne in, in Staten Island. Or yeah, but uh, and Morgan was like, "Well, we can't make sparkling wine." Um, <laughs> well, I, like, I, I just love that we went from trying to make incredibly ageable, virtually undrinkable petite straw in its youth, which is also virtually unsellable, yeah. to something that was even harder to make yeah. and equally unsellable. Yeah. Well, and don't you time. need com- like completely different equipment too? Yes. Or yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was sort of a logistical challenge, which you know, oh, me that. being in New York, I was like, well, Morgan has to worry about it. Um, <laughs> and but we we did come around to the idea that we could find a place to do it. And uh, Morgan had been working with this vineyard, Brosso Vineyard, for the past two years um, for Bedrock for still wine. Um, and Brosso is down in the Chalone AVA, so about three hours south of San Francisco in the Gablin Range. This is the one like near the Pinnacles, right? Exactly. Like it's in the shadow of the Pinnacle. If there's a vineyard that is beautiful wine, beautiful vineyard, this is the place. It's at 1,800-ish feet, um, but really special. Own rooted vines, Wente clone on limestone and granite. So a pretty sexy mix of soil. Um, and Morgan always says this, that the fruit was basically falling off the vine at like 21 and a half bricks. Wow. So we knew, we knew that the if we picked that sparkling wine levels being around 19 bricks, the wine would still have a lot of flavor, a lot of character, a lot of place, which is sort of what we were going for. And it started out just kind of as a fun little side friend thing. And then after we made the first wine in 2011, the base juice, we started talking about it more and we're like, why aren't there more artisanal sparkling wines in California? You know, we've obviously copied the big house champagne style here with, you know, Schramsberg and the French coming over directly, Mum and Chandon. But the grower champagne model really hadn't been explored in California in a serious way. And of course, now, seven years later, we know exactly why. It's (laughs) incredibly (laughs) difficult, incredibly expensive. And particularly at the time when we started it, there wasn't this movement for... more unique California wine. I mean, I think California has changed a lot in the last six, seven years of the consumer's willingness to go outside of the Cabernet and Chardonnay world. Um, But, you know, Bedrock was doing pretty well. And at that point, we had talked about it and I was about ready to move out to join up with him at Bedrock. And uh, now we make seven different ones from... And it's all single vineyards. Seven different under the wires? Eight? Seven? Started to pass. It's a like year. Been holding that on me because <coughs> I've had a couple. Yeah, and well, I the, the talk problem, about them all the time. It uh, takes a while, Sam, to make sparkling wine. Yeah, the problem is, is this is we're <laughs> talking like a four-year turn here. Yeah, yeah. Right. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, so it was sort of this experimentation of finding terroir via bubbles, um, which really hadn't been explored very much at the time, if at all. Um, and it was incredibly rewarding, and everyone told us that we would never be able to sell $50, $60 bottles of single vineyard, single varietal, single vintage sparkling wines, but they've been blowing out, and people are really into them, and Brosseau is one of the more unique wines that we make, um, and everyone is kind of different. We work with... Go ahead. And where, where are you selling these wines? So Because... I think a lot of people are curious, is this at a tasting room or are you selling these in the retail market? We don't have a tasting room yet, although that's coming up, people. Uh-huh. Um, they sell mainly to our mailing list. Yeah, so um, yeah, mostly the mailing list and then a little bit in California, a little bit in New York, a little bit across the other country. And, and so the listeners know, the, the under the wire mailing list is not the bedrock mailing list. Yes, it is so a separate. So if you're curious... Um, how oh, do that, they find that out? That actually out? might explain why. Google, <laughs> Google under the wire wines or under dash the dash wire dot com. You could sign up there. We do one release a year, and 
Yeah, we want a little bit of wine to get to some of our friends' restaurants and around, and frankly, it's actually really big in Japan. Um, You're huge in Japan? Huge in Japan. <laughs> huge in Japan. Uh, yeah, but... Uh, we also have a Beatles cover band. Yeah. It's fantastic. It's a little so. side, another side project that Morgan and I have. <laughs> But yeah, it's been. Does it's, this include Cody and uh, Luke? And yeah, the, absolutely. Well, who's somebody the, has to be George Harrison. <laughs> <laughs> Cody's definitely, definitely George Harrison. Definitely. <laughs> definitely. We won't say who's Ringo, but it's probably me. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> hey, you get the hot wife. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Uh, but no, it's been an incredible sort of side geek out project, especially with Morgan, who, frankly, I don't think has ever been truly intellectually satisfied. Um, <laughs> You know, when you start making wine at five. Will he, um, will he ever? I mean, that's... Yeah, and that's sort of the beauty of getting to work with Morgan. Um, sparkling wine has been <laughs> a real interesting, exciting, challenging sort of adventure that's sort of pretty uncharted territories in many ways. Yeah. Um, and the results have been really good. And I'm, I think it's hard to know exactly where we're at with it and what we've learned so far because it does take so long. Like we're having 2013 now. All the reds on the table are 2016. Um, so it's, it's going to be kind of a 20, 30 year sort of process of figuring it out, but it's fun to be one of the, one of the producers laying the groundwork for sort of next generation sparkling Absolutely. wine producers in California. Well, what other varietals are you working with? So we work with Chardonnay and Pinot Noir, um, which we've worked with, uh, Brosso Vineyard Chardonnay, Alder Springs Chardonnay, Hirsch Pinot Noir, Alder Springs Pinot Noir. We actually also make a Zinfandel. I was yeah, going to say, <laughs> one time you tried to kill Morgan's father. <laughs> yes. <laughs> From Bedrock Vineyard, the planted it's vines true. planted between 1888 and 1895, uh, made into sort of, which actually has some historical um, significance in Sonoma mm -hmm. in that Arpit Harestes, um, the godfather's son, actually went to Champagne and studied making a Champagne and came out with a wine called Eclipse in the 1870s or 1880s? 1870s. 1870s. Yeah. And it was hugely popular. He made a ton of sparkling wine in based, that vineyard. based around Sonoma Valley. So we can, at least let's make the legend become fact, we can theorize that at some point Arpit probably got grapes from in or around Bedrock, and he actually said that Zinfandel... The winemakers, where legends become facts. Yeah, exactly. Right? Yeah, <laughs> man who shot Liberty Valance, shout, shout out yeah. there. But um, there'll be a lot of that today. But um, Well, according to my father, who first planted Zinfandel in California, <laughs> he sold it to our pod. So like, he actually brought it over from Croatia yeah, in yeah, the Habsburgian yeah. nurseries and just you know planted that first vine in the ground. He's going to be really upset with you and happy with you because you're calling him old, but at the same time, he did invent Zinfandel. Um, <laughs> But yeah, um, so there is actually history. And he, when you look at the chemistry, not to get too nerdy here, but this is a winemaker pod. When you look at the chemistry of Zinfandel, when you pick it at sparkling wine levels um, for us, which is like around 19 and a half, the yeah. chemistries are actually very similar to Chardonnay and Pinot Noir, um, which is kind of fascinating. And that's, that's one of the things that also with Under the Wire, where the name comes from, is that you know, traditionally with the big houses, they are picking super early, right? Because unlike with a red wine or white wine, you pick it a little bit too late. All right, we're all bummed out, but you can still make the wine. With sparkling wine, you have all these barriers where if you pick it too late, there'll be too much sugar, therefore too much alcohol, so you may not get your secondary fermentation to go off. Also with pH and sulfur use, that's also an issue. So we're always kind of picking right on the edge of where we can because we want to get as much flavor out of the vineyard, where the sparkling wine, a bigger sparkling wine house is generally like, we'll build the flavor in the cellar with different techniques. We want to get as much of the vineyard out as possible. So we're always just trying to pick just under the wire is sort of the goal. Uh, um, it's, I mean, obviously it's under a wire thing, which is sort of, a side benefit of the name when we came up with it. The but fact yeah. that it was out there, 
Right. It was a good. There was a lot of goo. When you anyone out there who's trying to name a wine, good luck. It's it is, tough. Yeah. It's a it's lot really of googling. Why do you think you end up with stuff like your freaking address? Sixteen six hundred. I will Wait, say that it, wasn't a that wasn't a planned thing. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> totally. I wanted to make it as hard to spell and hard to remember as possible. <laughs> you got, you got to come up with a legend, man. You got yeah. to come to turn into facts. Yeah, legends become facts. When, when Phil Kachuri invented organic farming <laughs> right. in, eight, in 1855. <laughs> <laughs> um, it is interesting with uh, Under the Wire and Sparkling that we're sort of doing the exact opposite of what we do in the Bedrock wines in that. Um, you know, we're really trying to maximize flavor and truly looking for proper flavor ripeness at low potential alcohol, which is why vineyard site is so important yeah. and why you got to find cold places. We got to find cold places, but also just good, well-farmed places. Yeah. I mean, the vast majority of fruit that you see farm for sparkling wine in California is usually cropped at like six to eight tons per acre because the way that they're trying to prevent ripeness and a sudden acceleration or a huge drop in acid um, is by cropping it up really right, highly. Right. We sort of are going the opposite route uh, and sort of finding really fantastically farmed vineyards in the right spots. Um, but it's also like incredibly, it makes it extra expensive though, because if you think about when you're pressing for sparkling, it's a very different process than when you're pressing for white wine or for red and that you're taking the Venclair, which is usually, let's say you get 160 to 170 gallons per, of juice per ton of grapes. So if you're making standard wine, red wine, you get all 165 gallons of that. When you buy a ton of fruit, let's say Hirsch, which is very expensive fruit, you only get to really use the first 100 gallons in the okay. finished wine. So if you think about it, the finished wine is actually 30 to 40% more expensive in fruit costs than even what, the, what that initial tonnage price would dictate. So it makes it really, really tricky. But... Um, it also makes it that much more important we're working with sort of impeccable sites. Mark Harold once told me that uh, if he was going to make a sparkling wine in California the way that he would want to make it, uh, it would have to be like $400 a bottle. Yeah. And, I mean, you know, he's also part of that is like paying himself, which <laughs> right. is, you know, as a Napa winemaker is yeah. an important part of that well, equation. Well, if you but factor in my six-figure consulting yeah, exactly. fee. Right. And, <laughs> and the, you know, but, but um, it is, you know, to make real champagne – uh, method champenoise. It's it's labor intensive. It's everything. Yeah. You know, you're touching those bottles many you know, many more times, yeah. which and the is, risk is much higher as well. Right. Which is why I think we kind of got. I'm not gonna lie. We got a. We have bedrock, right? So that kind of helped. You know, Morgan built a wonderful, beautiful business, and um, that helped sort of no, finance. The, the beautiful thing about Under the Wire is it keeps Chris motivated to sell a shit ton of old <laughs> bad right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But <laughs> he, has to, he has to pay for his Under the Wire. Right, right. right. Yeah, I have a lot of expensive hobbies, you but Under the Wire another? has been the most expensive yeah, for by far. Guilt is a motivating yeah, factor. Right. But <laughs> you want to add another vineyard, you need to pay for yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, get me Texas. Um, yeah. But. <laughs> um, but no, I think with the timing of it being sort of 2013, 14, when the wine started to hit the market is, A, we had a really good mailing list from Bedrock that a lot of them transferred over. And the way that you're able to make it pencil for sparkling wine at the price point that we're offering, which is around $50 a bottle, which isn't crazy in champagne world, but obviously very expensive in California sparkling world. When you look at how good Rotor Anderson Valley is for 22 bucks or Schramsberg for 28 bucks, is that we sell so much of it direct. And that sort of gives us a little bit more 
that offsets the complete lack of economy of scale. Exactly. Right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, I don't so how, how many cases is under the wire? It's about this year. It varies a lot. It's gone from a high of a thousand over six wines to a low of six hundred over five wine. You know, depending. You know, we've yeah. we've had definitely, but it's somewhere in the seven fifty to a thousand over somewhere between six and eight wines, depending on the year. So and there's a little bit of a, a lot of different sites. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. A, well, you guys I know. Have extended I know that your harvest. I mean, talk. <laughs> harvest is already tough. Now you guys are. <clears throat> August, August adding another month or well, month with, and a half with Contra Costa, we're already pretty early. Uh, <laughs> we're pretty much hosed. Yeah, the moment, moment we bought Evangelo, Morgan and we, Chris we host, host host this amazing Fourth of July party every year, and I and essentially <laughs> that's, that's by the way that we host an amazing harvest party. Kate and Morgan oh, host Kate, an amazing okay, Fourth, Fourth of July. Party. All right, and my other and partner, <laughs> I, and I never see and I don't see them again. You don't even hear from barely they even like <laughs> posting right. on Instagram until the harvest party, which. Is usually like right towards the uh, the middle of our harvest. They're having their harvest party. It's like an excuse yeah. to, you know, do something fun <laughs> in the middle of harvest. And that's the and then so that's you know really July until October. Um, We've picked in July before, and we generally go second to third week of October. So yeah. it's, it's a it's a two and a half month long harvest. Although, as do you ever do you ever sleep? Uh, I mean, yeah, we have, we have employees now, so oh, right. <laughs> it's made it a little bit easier. Yeah, I'm working on that. 2012, 2013, absolutely not. Uh, um, well, as Sam was saying, uh, I recently uh, got a house in Tahoe, actually quite close to oh, his, yeah. and he said the summers up there are so nice, you're actually going to start picking later. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You're not going to want to leave until the end of August. <laughs> Change everything. So, under the wire is doomed. <laughs> if you only knew how nice October was up there. Oh, yeah. Those are the things you just choose yeah. not to know. Yeah. I, I one, one day when I'm retired, I'll get to Piedmont for truffle season. But in the meantime, yeah, that's not happening. That's not happening for 40 years. <laughs> uh, keep making sparkling wine. Yeah. <laughs> So should we, since we have like we seven, seven wine, yeah, let's open. Jump to? So why don't we uh, jump to Ode to Lulu Rosé? Um, since we are in the Rhone room, it seems like a good, good wine to oh, pour. I, I wanted to mention that we are in yeah, the yeah, Rhone room broadcasting today. live on a recording from the and, uh, <laughs> from the Rhone room. Right. Thank you, uh, Sandra Bernstein and Jonathan. Actually, was nice enough to open up the doors for us. Jonathan, do you have any Grenache orders you can throw into me while I'm here? He may be a hippie, but ABC yes, always, always be classic. <laughs> Entrepreneurial hippie. That's uh, right. I mean, I, like, frankly, I think that's something that uh, a tie that binds uh, Morgan's family and my family, exactly. going back to our histories. You know, hippie little preschools and uh, I like wine. Uh, entrepreneurial innovating hippies i think i I like to uh joke that i think with both of our parents um or at least our fathers it's probably good that some mind-altering substances are regularly consumed because it literally keeps them tethered to the earth otherwise they might be the most terrifyingly type a human beings oh no i thought that you were talking about our mind-altering substances (laughs) so we can handle them being our father (laughs) i mean it's a a both yeah (laughs) it's it's a coping mechanism as well So, Morgan, when did you start Bedrock Wine Company? <laughs> exactly. Uh, I don't remember anymore. Um, so, uh, oh, yeah, we, so we just poured some Ode to Lulu? Yeah, so we started We're making this wine room. in 08, which was the um, second year of uh, the winery. And, you know, it was, this is, again, a little something like sparkling wine um, in California. But, like, when I started making Ode to Lulu, 
um, which is whole cluster press uh, rosé. Um, I think I could count maybe four or five other rosés made in the state of California that were made in what I consider to be an authentic way where grapes are picked at lower potential alcohol, whole cluster pressed, really made with purpose. I mean, not just made with Signet. Yeah, exactly. And Sinsky's been doing it forever with their Vingri, but there's been like, there's very few others. Um, and now, I mean, you can't like turn around without running into another one. Well, and like sparkling wine, I mean, back in 08, no one was drinking your dry rose. It I remember I made, I made 150 cases of Ode to Lulu in 2008, and I was terrified. Because obviously with rose, you have the, it's a very seasonal wine, so you have a very short window to sell it in as and well. That's when Morgan Tweet, Twain Peterson invented rose. <laughs> yes. <laughs> God. I'm really getting the fuzzy end of that lollipop. If Dad invented Zinfandel and I invented Rosé, it's... Uh, <laughs> um, so, uh, but Eau de Lulu's really unique. Um, it's one of... It's a really difficult wine to make. Actually, I think Rosé is really challenging because the market is just so color-sensitive. agree with you more. Yeah, and I mean, it can be prone to reduction, but also oxidation. Um, it's... Uh, yeah, it's, it's tricky. Um, but what makes Eau de Lulu really cool is that all of the fruit that gets put into it was planted pre-1922. So um, most of the Morved, um, or Mataro as we call it, and have called it in California since the 1860s, um, it comes from Contra Costa County planted in the 1890s. The Grenache comes from um, Gibson Ranch in Mendocino planted in the late 1880s. And then there's also a little bit of uh, Mataro from Pagani Ranch, which is planted in 1922 here in Sonoma Valley. How much, how much Mataro is out there? It's, uh, oh, at Pagani? It's a tiny block, and he could never get it ripe. Like, there was one year that Ridge Vineyard designated it as an ATP wine, but other right. than that, like, I think that was in 95, so a pretty hot year. So it's their part of that, those old vines that you see on the side of the road. Exactly. It's somewhere in there is a it's the block. Front, it's the front part of the vineyard, if you're going... Yeah, there's, there's two plantings at Pagani. The stuff that's right on the highway, which is probably the most photographed vineyard in Sonoma Valley, and is beautiful. With the barn and the red leaves it's, and the... Yeah, yeah that's super virus Alicante Boucher. Um, it's so beautiful, Morgan. It is, it is very pretty in October. Um, so that was actually planted in 1922. And then the really old stuff is back by Norma's house, Dino's mom, um, back there and that stuff was planted in the 1880s and I legitimately think that that's probably one of the two oldest vineyards left in Sonoma Valley because it wasn't planted on St. George rootstock. What, what, what else is on that list? Is Old Hill on that? What's the? No, so I, I'd say the only other one, it's planted on Lenoir rootstock which mm -hmm. they were working with in the mid-1880s. They didn't start um, really working with St. George until 1887 so the, really the first plantings of vines on St. George came after that. So if you ever hear people say that they have a vineyard that's on St. George and planted in like the 1870s, which people do claim, it's just completely false. Um, but there's the Semillon block up at Monterosso, which will have the wine from, um, that was, that's planted on Lenoir rootstock. Mm -hmm. And then um, Pagani's planted on Lenoir. And what's crazy about Pagani Ranch is in the old vines, there's been areas where the Lenoir, um, where the scion has died off, and they've just trained the Lenoir up. So Lenoir is a non-vinifera grape. Um, it's a Vitis estivellus, I believe. And, um, but they've trained it up, and it'll actually fruit. So Pagani Ranch Heritage Wine, which we make, is usually 3 to 6% non-vinifera huh. grape, which is They're great. actually Look sex vines, so they'll be male and female vines. Yeah, so sometimes male I, I know another plant like that. Uh, male vines don't have <laughs> fruit then? Uh, yes. Yeah, okay. that's the right way. Yeah. Uh, I think there's two things that we should uh, point out here. Uh, one is 
Morgan. Morgan is definitely the most uh, decorated person we've ever had on the podcast. Right. He's a, a MW, a master, master of wine, wine. which is um, how things like he just said roll off his tongue so easily. Uh, he's been studying them since he was five, basically. Um, and the other things that we haven't even talked about is the bedrock is sort of the standard bearer of uh, old vines in California um, and have staked that as a as a you know, claim and a, and a um, sort of cause that yeah. um, includes a, a nonprofit and, and the whole deal. So yep. um, let's maybe transi- pour some of the semi on and transition into that a little bit about yeah. um, you know, the, the Historical Vineyard Society and just the, where you come from on the, the old vine thing, how that, how that developed. Yeah, I mean, I think with Bedrock, I mean, I think what sort of... You know, one of the things that sets us apart is we do really do sort of have a, a mission with the winery and that we really work to rehab and work with older vineyards throughout California, particularly in places that aren't Sonoma and Napa, where, um, you know, their old vines are under threat from any number of different things. So, yeah, this wine is, I adore this wine. Now, has this wine always been 100% Semillon? So it's not, this is actually 55% Semillon. And okay. then 45% Sauvignon Blanc from a vineyard you're well familiar with in Ubaldi. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, um, yeah, so the, the Cuvée Caritas, which we're drinking now, this um, is based around the he oldest. Names the wine after his dog. <laughs> <laughs> Who names their dog after a basketball player? <laughs> <Fair enough>. <laughs> <laughs> Shots fired. <laughs> They're both adorable guys. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, if I come up with cuvee curry though, then you. <laughs> be. I, I don't. I think I'd be the least of your worries if that was what happened. Yeah, you know, banging down your door, going, uh-uh. Uh, it's true. Uh, <laughs> um, so uh, yeah, so cuvee caritas, uh, yes, named for my beautiful, soon to be twelve-year-old uh, great Pyrenees caritas. Uh, is based around the oldest semion plantings that we know of in the world. So um, planted at just about a thousand feet at Monterosso Vineyard, dry farmed um, on these deep banks of red clay loam. It's a pretty unbelievable sight. And I found about, out about the block from Zelma Long, who was the winemaker at Simi for a really long time. And she said that the semion that, for, that she worked with up there back in the day was really great, um, probably had been ripped out. When we found out about it, um, and I asked, uh, Gallo was putting it into Rancho Zabaco Sauvignon Blanc. Because they had recently purchased. uh, Just disappeared. Yeah, just disappeared. They didn't really know what it was. Um, And so we took it over on an acreage contract in 2008 and um, started making Cuvée Caritas with it. And it's, uh, you know, I really wanted to make like a quote unquote serious white wine that saw some barrel work and some other, you know, um, and. I didn't want to really make Chardonnay at the time because I felt like I didn't have as much to add to that conversation. And I hadn't really found a vineyard site at that point that really stirred me. So <clears throat> I think Bordeaux Blanc is one of the most underrated white wines in the world. It's, in, it's freakishly expensive when it's really good. So there's a huge barrier to entry, unfortunately. Um, but we made a wine based on that. So um, Cuvée Caritas is barrel fermented. It's usually sees 40 to 60% new French oak. Um, <coughs> And actually, when 16, we also started mixing in some Stockinger barrels from a very old Cooper in the Austrian Alps as well. Could you, could, could you talk about that Cooperage a little bit? What, yeah. what makes it so unique? 
Yeah, so um, Stockinger is just one of these things that was pretty much unknown in the United States, but if you go and you taste around northern Italy or south of France, like Roberto Quinterno uses exclusively Stockinger Fudras in Piedmont, um, mm. and there's a number of other people that are like that. And then I was tasting with Maxime Greyot and Croze Hermitage, and um, he does his whites in large format Stockinger barrels, and they're literally like the best white barrels I've ever tasted. There's barely any toast on them, so they're really beautiful texture barrels. The Cooperage itself is pretty incredible in that it was founded in 1521 um, in the Alps uh, in a little town called Wadehofen. The only other claim to fame from Wadehofen is that it's part of a scene from the Hotel New Hampshire by John Irving that, in, that, in that novel. Uh, There's a random <laughs> Yeah, just random fact for you. This is very <laughs> typical of Morgan Dwayne <laughs> Peterson, uh, M.W. Uh, <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> Must be a lot of fun to work. Was oh, that, it's the best. Was it's that celebrity best. winemaker Chris Cachel? Hey! Yeah, so. <laughs> <laughs> well, you should. I mean, we um, with, with so, Stockinger, yeah, go. So yeah. So anyways, um, all the barrels are still made completely by hand, um, using like really, really old tools. They're like furniture makers more than Coopers. Yeah, exactly. But it's French oak or it's Austrian oak. It's yeah, where, o- I was gonna say, where's the? It's wood Austrian coming oak. from. It it's is. Austrian oak, and so there's is sort it, of it's this like native to that area. It's I mean, the same species. So it's okay. Quercus sicilis and Quercus. Robar, which you see in um, in France, but what's interesting is there's sort of like this idea that French oak is the best oak, um, and the reality is is it really depends where in France the oak right. comes from because there's some really crummy oak made uh, grown in France as well. Allier, yeah, exactly. Or uh, uh, what is it called, Limon Tour down like that super wide grain stuff. And it's actually the tightest grain oak that you can find in Europe is actually found in Hungary, in the Tokai region. And if you actually, and it's the same um, species again. So it's not like French Cold oak. weather grows slower. <clears throat> yeah, exactly. It's just, like, it's just like grapes or any other plant. Like if you have, you know, really rocky soils and you have cold weather and things grow more slowly. And that's the reason too, like people will list like this forest in France, like it's like this magic thing, like Troncé or Allier or Nevers or Bertrange or, but the reality is, is like there you have, you know, swales and they have knolls and they've got wet spots and they've got, so like not all oak is created the same. It's, it's why when you're in Burgundy and you're tasting Francis Frere barrels and you're like, wow, this tastes amazing. And then you taste some Pinot Noir here in the quote unquote same barrel. They're not the same. Not I mean, the same. You mean they didn't send the, ca- the Americans the same barrels <laughs> yeah, that they sent the guys yeah. in Burgundy? At least they didn't send us what they sent the Australians. Yeah, that's always the rumor. <laughs> the Australians get the worst one. When I first started at Kenwood, we were always so proud of our Limousin yeah. French oak barrels, you know, and ultimately that was the fact was that's all we could get. Yes. Well, and I think during the 80s, I mean, when you look at, you know, when my dad started Ravenswood in 76, he had the option of like two Coopers to work with here. I think it was Segu- or I think it was um, Demptos and Nadalier had just moved in. And there's, so the options were really limited. Um, most of the barrel makers in France uh, were making barrels more for cognac production. So, and that is where the Limousin area is, um, north of Bordeaux. And so that sort of tended to be the the high volume barrels were being made from those oak, and that oak was great too because it's super wide grained, it's warm, it grows really fast. It's you know, so it's all the reasons why it's really not that good for wine, but it's fantastic for barrel production. Well, and I mean, Stockinger wasn't exported to the United States until 2015. They were one of the few sort of now with the the plethora of options of French oak. Stockinger um, refused to export to the United States, and it, we actually. 
we were maybe thinking about Roberto. I'd offered to maybe grab us some barrels, and we were going to pit them up in Montfortino, which seemed like a logistical <laughs> challenge. But then, um, luckily, our, we got to give a shout out for the Stockinger hookup from thank, Raj Parr. Who, thank you, Raj. Thank you, Raj, because he's the one who went there and and became and and got them huh. to export here, um, so we could finally get the Stockinger barrels because we were craving them for three, four years. Yeah, we've been trying to figure out a way to work with them. So yes, could be. Cool. So, and it, so, is this wine actually, this is a Emmanuel Goldstein planted these vines? So Emmanuel Goldstein, yeah, exactly. Um, it's amazing. Everybody sort of thinks these old vineyards were planted by old Italians. That's sort of right. like the, that's the story. And the reality is, is it's not really true, um, particularly in Sonoma Valley. The Italians just worked there. What's that? The Italians just worked there. Well, and some, some, a lot of these vineyards were planted before that wave of immigration mm. from Southern Europe as mm. well, which came with, I believe, the second industrial revolution or first industrial revolution. Um, and so, like, you'll see, like, Old Hill Ranches, William McPherson Hill, like, Bedrock Vineyard was, you know, Senator George Hurston before that, Eli uh, T. Whitman. Shepard. Shepard. Um, Pagani Ranch was not actually known as Pagani Ranch. That was probably owned by Joshua Chauvet back um, at that point. Um, and then Monterosa was planted by the, literally one of the only Judaic names I've seen in California, but Emanuel Goldstein. Um, and he planted it in the 1880s, uh, pretty much watched it die of phylloxera the first time, replanted, and then died. Um, so, And you know, Goldstein has a sort of impact in the, in, the, in the backwoods of Sonoma. I mean, there's a, there's a road, a trail that goes <laughs> through the Mayakamas Mountains that people who live there, you know, their whole lives refer to as the Goldstein Trail. Right. You know, he, it's likely um, that there was other vineyards up there um, pre-Prohibition. Yes. Um, you know, the area that's now owned by uh, the guy who started the battery, Michael Birch, um, and planted to... Mostly Cab, but we have some Grenache and some Whites up there. Um, that was a vineyard um, until Prohibition. It got ripped out actually when Prohibition ended, and they could stop using the grapes for bootlegging. Um, right. That was that was the death of that vineyard, and it was in fallow and then sheep and horses for a hundred years until we replanted it. Yeah, I mean it's pretty amazing when you see some of these old vineyards where they actually planted some of them. I mean, for me, the most insane one is the Chenin Blanc planted in 1919 in Chalone. Yeah, it's right, like right next to Brosseau where the sparklings It's like were. who in the right mind went up there and was like, I'm going to plant Chenin Blanc right. here in 1919. It's, right. a, it's a slog today to get up there. Um, well, I think that kind of leads us into sort of going back to what you were saying earlier, Morgan, about what we do. It's very much a mission-driven winery because we actually do have a lot of old vines left in California, relatively speaking, and they are all over the place, which I think we should do Evangelo next because this yep. is sort of... Definitely lesser known old vine place, but there's actually some pretty incredible old vines. Could there. probably do a whole show on Evangelo. Yes, we should. We should do a show from Evangelo and just be scared the entire time. <laughs> uh, uh, will, the, will the power lines interrupt with our microphones? Yeah, definitely. You'll get the hum for sure. It's yeah. just it's the, it's the meth busts I'm worried about. Uh, <laughs> so event. <laughs> Shout out to Contra Costa County. <laughs> that's East Contra. That, that's right. right. Hashtag Antioch. <laughs> that is right. We are in Contra, beautiful Contra Costa County, the in the count- town of Oakley, Oakley and Antioch. The, the Counter Coast. Um, the Counter but the, Coast. I, if there's, I mean, this is a vineyard that Morgan obviously both of us really love because we purchased it last year. And wow. it's. Yeah. Um, and we paid Sonoma prices for it. Yeah. We, we, um, we stepped up for it because it is 1890s own rooted. 
Zinfandel, Carignan, and Morvedra, with a few other things like Palomino and Mission and Alicante Boucher, planted in pure beach sand, essentially. When you walk through the vineyard, it's, it's beach sand. Yeah, it's an unbelievable vineyard. And it's, this is... Um, and that, so all of those grapes are in here. You just pick it all at once. So this... Field so, blended. So it's sort of a, it's a combination of both. So all the blocks out there are their own unique field oh, they blends, okay. but they're usually weighted towards, they are weighted towards a dominant variety. Huh. So we'll pick those as field blends, but then we'll also put together a final blend right. of the various different lots. So since it's a 33 acre vineyard, we continue to sell to all of the clients that Frank Evangelo sold to, but we do take a, quite a few different lots from it. And there's some hot winemakers in that list. Since yeah. you own the vineyard now and you're on your self fruit, you should give a shout out to your <laughs> other so, clients. Um, yeah, we've been. It's really fun, and it's actually. I think that this is what makes me so excited is that people are now really truly getting excited about what's out in Contra Costa County, and all because of that. Um, you know, vineyard owners are starting to be able to realize better prices for their grapes, and now farming is getting better, and then the wines are getting better as right. So it's really starting that sort of upward cycle, self-reinforcing cycle, which is great. So. Yeah, we're fortunate that, you know, I was introduced to this vineyard by Tegan Pasalacqua, um, who's the winemaker at Turley and has his own Sandlands label and is a good friend. Um, and I went out in 2011. I had never been out there. This isn't a part of the world that my dad worked with when it came to Zinfandel um, and just was like blown away by it. I mean, the vineyard is wedged between a PG&E power plant, a Kmart a Riverview motel that rents rooms by the three-hour increment. Um, That's generous. And, yeah. Three hours. Three hours, you know. <laughs> My wife would say, wow. <laughs> wow, what are we going to do for the other two hours and 45 minutes? <laughs> Talk. <laughs> Cuddle. Cuddle. Aww. Aww. Um, yeah, and then now in a out, you know, a out of business uh, driving range as well on the, on the other side. You should plant more grapes there. I, w- I wish we could. The land is really expensive out there, and that's sort of, I mean, be- and, but, because and not, of apartments. But, you're right, I was going to say, it's not vineyard pressure, it's no, it's, housing it's, pressure. It's, it's development What pressure. we've seen is as you go around California, and you know, we've kind of, we're working in seven, eight counties now with Old Vine, something like that. Mm. You know, the, the economic pressures for these Old Vine vineyards have different reasons. You know, obviously Napa, it's, you know, to plant Cabernet, right? Um, Russian River Valley, it was to plant Pinot Noir. You know, you go out to Lodi, um, we saved a vineyard that was going to get ripped up, planted in 1915, and it was going to get ripped up and planted to walnuts, because that's a big cash crop. In Cocoa, it's purely for development. In Lodi, it's labor now And labor, too, for sure, yeah. Exactly. It's more automation. Machine harvesting. But in Contra Costa, because Bay Area Rapid Transit is expanding out there, because of the housing crisis, all that sort of stuff, these old vine vineyards are under threat from development. I know. Can you guys talk about that, your relationship with Tegan Pasalacqua and what you're doing to save old vines? And uh, I mean, yeah, I mean, um, Tegan obviously being with Turley and uh, I I mean, we, uh, we have, uh, aligned views on a lot of things and we actually, we work with a lot of the same vineyards. Um, and I think the one thing about Tegan, um, is that he just travels the state a lot, just like we do as well. Um, and so Tegan was also one of, he's one of the founding members of the Historic Vineyard Society, which you wanted me to bring up, and uh, along with Mike Officer from Carlisle, David Gates from Ridge. Um, and, uh, you know, we founded that organization to sort of create some, um, hopefully some better recognition for these old vines, because we realized that we were seeing these old vineyards get ripped up, and we had no idea 
we, there's no number in terms of how much acreage of old vineyard there, vineyards there were in California, what they were planted to, anything. So really, um, when we started HVS, it was to just almost get a handle on you know what this sort of scarce and precious resource was, and then we could get a sense of like, you know, either when a vineyard got ripped out, we sort of know what we were losing, and then on top of that, um, hopefully motivating growers and motivating owners to realize that they might have their hands on something really special when, you know, the next new wave guy comes in and be like, why do you have that crusty old Zinfandel there? I can, you'll get $6,000 a ton for Pinot Noir if you plant and, you know, figuring out a way to sort of provide another side of that conversation. Or right. How does that conversation go value. when you, you approach yeah. a guy who's got a, you know, a, a vineyard and it probably isn't getting a lot of money for it, but that's their source of income. And you yep. come in and say, hey, you know, there's pressure for us to plant Pinot Chard or whatever it mm -hmm. is. And, and you guys come in and what you say what? So, I mean, for us, when we, for Bedrock, I think we're really, really fortunate in that we have a very strong mailing list. And so our margins are good. Um, and it allows us, and we also, because we make Shebang, which is our little $12, $13 oh, grocery yeah. store wine, um, and we have our old vine, which old vines in is literally half of our production. Um, and what that allows us to do is it gives us a little bit of economy of scale as a small winery, but it allows us to go to a grower and say, hey, you know, you've got beautiful Zinfandel or Carignan or Mataro or Grenache or whatever um, here, but like you're not farming it particularly well. You're farming it for crop because you're getting paid $800 a ton or whatever. So you have to farm it for crop. What happens if, you know, you start transitioning and you're doing all this vineyard practice stuff that really keeps labor down. You're using pre-emergent herbicide or post-emergent herbicide. You're using Roundup. Yeah. Round, Roundup. You're using, um, you know, fungicides that give you longer intervals so you don't have to spray as much. You're doing all these stuff, these things and you sort of have to, cause you're trying to minimize your costs as best as you can. For us, we can go to him and say, well, Hey, we're going to pay you double, but we expect these vineyard practices to come in. Um, and you know, and I, and usually people are skeptical about it, but usually they start to really see, and the real reality is, is farmers are plant people for the most part. They know what a healthy system looks like. It just sometimes takes a little nudging to get them there. And a lot of times people want to farm better. They just, by the sheer economic circumstance, right. they can't. Right. So, and what we found, and it's been really pleasant to see, cause Turley does this as well, um, is when all of a sudden you have a vineyard that's being farmed really well, the soils look like they're healthy, the vines are healthy, um, you know, everything feels more verdant and, and, you know, there's just a feel that you get when you walk into a healthy vineyard, you know, the neighbors take notice. And then they also go, hey, how much are you getting paid? You're getting paid $2,000 a ton in Lodi, you know, where the, you know, Zinfandel average is, I think, $780 last year or something like that. You know, then they go, oh, how can we improve our farming practices? And they, and, you know, when you yeah. have, especially, you know, and it obviously depends on the area, the conversation you're going to have with someone in Russian River Valley or Napa versus someone you're going to have yes. in Lodi or Contra Costa, those are very different conversations. But ultimately, generally, these owners, I mean, if you have something that's been living for 80, 100, 120 years, it's pretty majestic and pretty special. And, and when you actually refocus them to sort of see, like, no, this is really special, not just for California, but for the world, to have something living that can produce something delicious, you sort of tug at their emotional strings, too, of like, do what, because I don't, I don't think there's anyone that would 
drive by a vineyard that's 120 years old that's been ripped up and not feel some sort of emotion. I mean, even if you're talking to civilians in the totally. market and you tell them about that, oh, these wines were planted in the 1890s and are making this wine, even if you know nothing about wine, that's a pretty powerful thing to experience and sort of have that existential crisis moment of I'm but a speck in this world and <laughs> these vines will probably outlive me. So, so the historical side of, vineyards- side of my brain blowing up. <laughs> Sam hooked me up. <laughs> So um, how many acres are registered with the Historical Vineyard Society now, and how many parcels is that? So it's a good question. I actually need to go double-check, but we've had really great success in getting people to sign up. Um, The the list has really grown in the past couple of years. It really has, and the number of things that we've, vineyards we've discovered, particularly out in areas like Contra Costa County and Lodi, where you really had these sort of commodity vineyards that people, in some cases, people didn't even name. Like the vineyard that uh, Chris and I bought in Lodi, um, was planted in 1915. It literally never had a name, um, and you know now it's called Katusha's Vineyards after um, uh, mothers of ours. Um, but the um, and it's right across the street from Tegan's Kershman Vineyard. Um, but the number of things that we're finding like that is pretty amazing, and people are actually starting There's to just like land with a with a crop. Exactly, mm. and people are now starting to like get the historic vineyard society signs. But I mean, we've registered you know thousands of acres of old vines, which is pretty amazing. Um, Can you talk about the tasting? That's yeah, and if you out? want to taste these wines, I was just, yeah. So, and what's really cool about old vines too is. Um, and it's hard because members of the board are we were a lot of us are known for making Zinfandel, but the reality is is that old vines, which we um, define as being over fifty years of age, um, take in a huge variety of variety of varieties, uh, an array of stuff, and it's not just like Zinfandel. It's like Zinfandel, Carignan, Morved, Petit Syrah, Grenache. But then you know at the event uh, on April twenty first at Press Club in San Francisco. Hans L is going to be pouring their ambassador's vineyard Pinot Noir and Chardonnay from 1954. Um, You know, we've got people pouring Montecillo Cabernet from vines planted in the early 1960s. Um, I I actually have a question. Yes. Uh, It seems to me people throw old vine around. Yes. A lot. Yeah. Um, But as the Historical Vineyard Society... um, you probably, I'm going to assume, have the best grasp of what a definition of a, of a historic vineyard is. Forget old vine, whatever. What, what um, you know, because obviously there's this range, and, and what are the factors that would make a, a vineyard, a historical vineyard? So for us, um, to be part of the historical vineyard society, the vineyard has to be a minimum of 50 years old. You need to be able to provide some documentation, although a lot of it's just a visual thing. You can see where vines are crowned, for instance, and that gives you an idea of when they are planted vis-a-vis when strip spraying started. And Aerial stuff. photography helps. Aerial photography. We've, oh. we've we found shots from like the... Um, uh, the ag administration going back to like the 1930s where you can be like, Oh, that vineyard was in the ground in the thirties. Um, and so for us, it's 50 years old. And that's also the date that basically the, um, the government uses to define a historic monument as well. So we figure 50 is sort of like, you have to draw the line in the sand at some point. And also 50 is great because that's sort of like, if you talk to French or Italian producers, they usually use 50 as sort of like the rough number for when they're going to start using VAV on their label or something along those lines. And I also personally like that because that really starts to take into account a lot of vineyards that were planted in the 1960s. And that's when you really started to see 
uh, new diversification or the first real diversification of what was being grown in California. So now we're seeing... And you know, varietal vineyards. Exactly. Right. So we're, we're having things planted to Chardonnay, to Riesling, to Trousseau Gris, or what was white Riesling, at the, or gray, gray Riesling. Riesling at the time, um, and Cabernet, and all of those other things. So you're starting to be able to see some really cool vineyards sort of come into the realm in that that regard, which makes it a more interesting, at least for the t- purposes of like the tasting on the 21st, it makes it really interesting because it's not going to be like just a more rarefied form of Zap or something like right. that. You're really going to be drinking fantastic wines. And we have such great producers that are coming too because it's also like are not Roberts, you know, and it, there's, and as I mentioned, in Hansel and um, uh, Sturm, who makes great Riesling and um, Birakino. Um, there's like a lot of people all over the sort of map when it comes to stylistic wines as well, um, which would make for a pretty interesting time. Old vines have definitely been defined <clears throat> for a good reason because the majority, a lot of them are Zinfandel, but there are a lot of other old vine vineyards and diversity of old vine vineyards in the state of California. And it's, it's well, it's your fault. You make all that old vine Zinfandel. <laughs> <laughs> it's, <true. laughs> it's his dad's fault and so, Paul Draper's fault and Kent Rosenblum's fault. How yeah. dare they? That's yeah. right, when they invented Zinfandel. <laughs> yeah. Right. The three of them together. <laughs> Um, but yeah, uh, so they've been, they've been mad battling for market share since 1842. <laughs> so April 21st <laughs> at the press club, go to historic vineyard society dot org, org. Um, for tickets. It's pretty affordable press club, April 21st. It's yeah. going to be awesome. Cool. Yeah, I think tickets are 30 bucks. Yeah. Um, it's a steal. So, nice. Um, yeah. So also I hope that it, uh, it helps when we, when you see these vineyards getting, to the 30, 40 year range, so much has been in California. Like, well, we got to re- we got to we got to replant them. Hopefully, yeah. we see more and more mm-hmm. of these forty plus, thirty plus year old vineyards go. You know what? Maybe we don't rip them out. Maybe we keep them in the ground so they become historic vineyards, and we get a little bit more of that. Yeah, I mean that's a very complex conversation, Maybe. right? Because what yeah. happens in twenty forty when? Uh, some Sonoma sprawled 10 foot tall cavern. Oh, that won't last that long. <laughs> right. It won't live that long. Never mind. Well, and okay. also, I just realized I'm sitting next to someone whose dad plants vineyards for a living. So, <laughs> no, but Phil Kateri has never met an old vine vineyard. This is want true. To rip this out and plant something new. In. <laughs> That's fantastic, old vines infidel. You know what would be great there? Grenache. <laughs> Well, what do you guys say it's when you come in and, and someone's got old vine and you say, hey, we're interested in buying that? Do you recommend a vineyard manager or do you guys just kind of give them advice uh, on, you know, this it, is what I think you should do? It really depends on the situation. Um, so uh, we we provide all forms of consulting services. <laughs> um so have this rash. Do not call <laughs> Phil. So, yeah. We're much more affordable. So. <laughs> No, but I think I think before Morgan yeah, goes, we have into, a winery to buy the grapes. Well, yeah. well, and I think before Morgan goes into the deep dive of farming, I think this is an example where Morgan's intellectual just obsession and constant trying to learn new things. You know, Morgan has really become much more focused on farming and and the farming side of the the winery business than the you know he's still obviously focused on well, we're still focused on winemaking, but I think in the last. Wine Five years, six years, you've really, you went from just kind of focusing on bedrock farming kind of as your beta test of like theories on how to rehab old vine vineyards and yeah. how to make them better. And now you, I mean, how many vineyards are we long-term leasing now? Oh. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's a number. It's and, a number. Um, um, owned a number. three between your dad and, and us. And 
I mean, the farming side has become a real effective tool for making the wines better. I mean, better. winemaking, it starts one on one. Well, and that's the thing is, I think what you realize when you make wine is, once you receive the fruit in the winery, you know, eighty percent of what's there has already been done. I mean, and you're really just trying to perfect something, a process that started in January and February. Yeah, they only do twenty percent of the work. <laughs> exactly. Um, so we wanted to jump in and take over that other eighty percent of the work because I don't like vacation. <laughs> uh, he really doesn't. He's so bored on the beach. Um, and uh, so yeah, so for us, we realized that that was a really you know the, the way that we better it. And I will say we started from the sort of the purchasing side because that's the model that I knew. You know, Ravenswood never owned their own vineyard until they bought the Garricky Road facility. And even then it was a tiny little vineyard. And my dad used to say that you would never get into the, you know, the grape growing industry, um, which made it very funny when he called me when I was still in graduate school in Manhattan. He was like, oh, I, I bought a vineyard. It took him like <laughs> 40 years in the industry to get dumb enough to buy a vineyard. Um, and uh, so start that dumb. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, and so, you know, and that was Bedrock Vineyard that he bought, which was no small vineyard either. It's 120 planted acres. So, you know, you definitely get, it was a lot to bite off. And so when I came back and I started Bedrock in 07, you know, we started thinking about the farming side there, but really I was purchasing fruit from people that um, my dad had traditionally purchased fruit from as well. Um, but I think it's sort of been with the tutorship of a lot of really fantastic growers. I mean, Diane Kenworthy, who farms on site at Bedrock and runs Sunbreak Vineyard Management with us. Phil, Sam's dad, has been a huge mentor. He's always ready to pick up the phone. David Gates at Ridge. There's any number of people that really have helped us along this path. But And we find ourselves at the point where now for Bedrock, we farm almost 50% of the fruit that comes into the winery. Um, and that's across five different counties. Um, and you know, and we work in certain situations, like in North Sonoma, we work with a vineyard management company because we don't want to deal with the staffing and all the driving all, tractors around. All, exactly. all the small logistics, but basically, we decide the you know the spray regimes, what we're doing for weed control, for, you know, floor management. Um, every single decision is directed from us. Um, and then there's other vineyards that even if we don't have a long-term lease on, we work very closely with the grower to do exactly what we want because we've got a good idea of what we want there. Um, so at this point, we, you know, we lease and farm uh, Nervo Ranch, which was planted in 1896 in Geyserville, so across from the Ridge Geyserville Vineyard. Uh, Sodini Ranch was planted in 1905 off of Limerick Lane. That's 16 acres there. We also help oversee the farming at Limerick Lane Vineyard and Winery on the same road, um, which we also get some fruit from. Um, and we just give Jake a hand, Jake Bill Bro a hand there. But then we have Bedrock Vineyard, which is 120 acres in Sonoma. We sell a lot of that fruit. But we um, then we have Alta Vista, which is Old Langer Verstrominer up off of Moon Mountain Road in the uh, or off of um, Garricky Road in the Moon Mountain District. Um, and we've got Puccini Vineyard up off of Schultz. Oakville Farmhouse in Oakville. Oakville Farmhouse in Oakville. I love we've that got wine. One of the last the last old vine mix mix you should field blends. Probably build a wall around it. Yes. We just, just like yeah. some guard towers to See, keep my dad's tractors out of it. <laughs> <laughs> Oops. But how did that tractor get all the way from Promontory down here? So. <laughs> uh, no comment. Um, so Evangelo and Pato and Contra Costa, Catushas yeah. and Lodi. So we you know we oversee a lot of the farming on that stuff. Well, and I think what I've experienced with you is that a lot of 
viticulturalists and growers just aren't that experienced with farming old vine vineyards. And so there's a lot of like, oh, this vineyard can't be, because sustainability is sort of a two-sided coin in our opinion. There is environmental sustainability, which is incredibly important to us. But then there's also, because you know, I think that makes better wine when you're farming a vineyard in a healthy way, a biodiverse way. But there's also financial sustainability. And that's, that's you know, classic sort of, oh, these old vines are getting ripped out because they're not financially sustainable. And that can certainly be a case, but a lot of what we found in these old vine vineyards is that there is a farming reason behind the crop load not being up to why financial it, sustainability. Why it's become non-economic. Yeah. Try and farm an old vine like, like a new vine and you're not going to get... And or there's been deferred maintenance, yeah, vines have like, died out. There's simple things like at Sodini, what, what was it, missing 50% of the vines? Almost. And it's like, oh, no wonder why they're not getting the tonnage that they're expecting right. because half, half, the vines, the half the vines are missing. Well, and it's amazing that, you know, when you look at old vines, head pruned vineyards, you know, as Sam's dad always talks about, it should be the goblet. Yes. Yeah. And how many of them aren't that way, you <laughs> yeah. know? The how everything is growing rehab inside pruning is on huge. top of each other. Yeah, rehab pruning is and huge. That's, that, that changes the whole it really does. Of the wine. And I think people somehow think with old vineyards, I mean, I've seen some, there's really weird things that people oh. have done with, uh, with head train vines. But um, I think with... Um, head train vineyards, a lot of times people like, try to put out more positions and more spurs because that's how they think they're going to get more crop. And right. what they actually do is they just stress the vine out and then you get these really weak positions. You have nothing to prune back to. And it actually begins like this downward cycle of productivity. So for us, when we get into a vineyard, it's really, you know, one, you have to look at the misses and all that stuff. But for us, it's also like pruning the vines back to what they can handle. And the real beautiful thing about pruning head-trained vines is that you take each vine as an individual rather than as a bunch of vines in a trellised system. Fist in the air on the yeah. podcast. <laughs> <laughs> and that means that you go, okay, this vine clearly didn't have a good year last year and it has six positions on it now. Let's leave four positions for next year and cut it, its expectations down by 33% go to the next vine and it's massive and it's got big bull canes or whatever and you go, okay, maybe we leave some more positions out on this one. Hmm. And in defense of trellised farming, uh, good pruning on that. You do, I mean, oh, it's you just have to do the same thing. I mean, right. it's, you know, it's, it's, it's about good pruning. It's about addressing it, each vine in a, you know, as, as the great Phil Kateri quote, creating order out of chaos. Yes. Uh, every vine is different and you can't, you know, there's no... You know, there's there's systemic things you can do, but every vine is a is an individual that you're trying to get to the same place at the same time. Right. You know, with well, 25 acres of other individuals. And, it, and in old vines, it's just even harder because, like at a vineyard like Bedrock, which we're now drinking, we have 27 different interplanted varieties, all of which have their own <laughs> proclivities. Then you have to factor in things like diff varying virus levels, uh, at what point in time the vines were replanted. And then you have things like Carignan and Grenache, which are exceptionally high vigor varieties, and Carignan's very prone to powdery mildew as well. Um, and then you've got things like Petit Straw, which are rather robust in their youth, but really kind of like peter out pretty quickly. And so you're really like pruning, you're taking all these different things into account when you prune. And so for me, like that's the you know ground zero for starting the rehab of a vineyard is like the first year of pruning. I mean, at Oakville Farmhouse, it had been pruned really badly. And that first year, Chris and I literally walked that whole vineyard with a chainsaw and just started like taking off weird double crowns. Like, oh, there was some great video that you guys posted out of that. I yeah, remember that exactly. now. I remember um, Chris with a chainsaw going, oh, no, I don't know. Are you wearing a hockey island? mask at this right. point? <laughs> we use it for different reasons in New York, but it's the same concept. <laughs> 
you know. <laughs> it's amazing how many more arms you can take off of a vine. <laughs> 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 yeah, I don't know what you're talking about. Um, so, and then after that, you know, it's it's soil health. And uh, since we have bedrock in our glass, I think it's worthwhile talking about what we've done um, as in terms of vineyard management at Bedrock. Because as Chris mentioned, this is sort of ground zero for everything that we've done and now do at all of our other ranches. But Bedrock this year, we've converted completely to organic non-till. Um, so, uh, which has taken us over a decade to get the soil into the place. 129. Um, just, all, just oh, the, the whole vines, the whole vines, vines. So which 33, 33 acres. Yeah. Um, and so basically what that meant is when we took the vineyard over, it was being farmed very chemically, um, very much in the sort of old school 60s, 70s Davis garb where sort of idea that, you know, the soil is really just a mechanism to hold the vine upright. Substrate, right. Exactly. And you'll just feed it whatever it needs through the drip tube. Um, and we're waving at Sandra just came into the room. Hi, Sandra. Hi, Sandra. Hello. Hi. Um, we're not talking about Rhone wines, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, um, we are. There's, we a, are. there's a lot of Syrah at Bedrock. There is a lot of Syrah at Bedrock. There's a lot of Syrah at Bedrock. Um, there's a little of, you know, there's a little of those Rhones. Grenache, yeah, beans. more Vedra. Yeah. Carignan. Carignan. Yeah, they're they're all, um, <laughs> so, um, And you're making, we'll talk about that later, but you're going to make some Grenache from a Phil Coteri vineyard this year. It's true. Yeah. I, so I'm, right. I'm aware did, of a new, yeah. I, saying, I, did I, he I only had told Chris yet. My bad. Crazy news here. It's better. It's better to do it here. You've, yeah. you've, I've it's better to fire somebody on a podcast. <laughs> right. His response is recorded. So, right. I am. I am no, never shocked by another vineyard coming our way. This is just an old friend. An, an old friend coming back. Is it Rossi? Yeah, it's Rossi. Rossi. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, you know, Morgan's the reason we're at Rossi. Yeah. Morgan true. said Phil could farm this better. And well, and that it goes, yeah. it ties. Those are there's deep ties to the Katuri family yes. at uh, at Rossi. My parents, my parents met picking there. You know I, that? Yeah, they, they have yeah. I, have I told you that stuff? Have you read it on the internet somewhere? Do <laughs> <laughs> um, you read my emails? <laughs> oh, those pictures. That's weird for you, Sam. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, no-till farming, huh? Yeah. So. I, <laughs> I, all of a sudden, this seems way less interesting. <laughs> <laughs> really focusing on the soil yeah. first, right? Yeah. Morgan Twain Peterson, MW? <laughs> really looking at the fact that the soil, as we see more and more, is its own biome, just like our own guts are in many ways. And so the more, the, the healthier and the more living your soil is, um, the more you're going to have really beneficial interactions with the vines and with everything else. And via cover crops, insectary rows, lots and lots and lots of compost, biochar, like all these things that help build the soil up. Um, we've actually really been able to see um, a huge amount of soil improvement. And um, at the same time, you know, carbon farmers now improvement yeah, in the wine though. I think that's one of the yeah. craziest things is that, you know, we can talk about, we can all sit around the campfire with the Katori's and smoke, you know, smoke some, uh, some devil's lettuce and you know, geek out <laughs> about how organic farming will save us all. But ultimately it's to make, that's what they the, call it in Staten Island. <laughs> <laughs> it's ultimately to make the wines better. And at bedrock, I think it's the best example of where, you know, going to dry farming as well, which we're big believers in dry farming. Uh, we've been able to pick the grapes at lower sugar with the same amount of flavor and more flavor and also seeing a pH drop as well where we have much healthier pHs. So all the inputs that have been put into bedrock, all the things that Morgan have talked about, have made the wines better. Yes. Um, and, and, and 
Otherwise, yeah, I mean, it's what, what we're doing there is incredibly labor intensive and expensive. So, you know, we we would not be doing it if we weren't seeing, you know, the, the end result. So no till means no till, no, no till. disc, no spading, a roller no crimper. Nothing. Yeah. So basically what it is, um, is we've, um, um, you know, we've we've created a system out there by which we don't need to till like one of the hardest things in organic farming is weed control and so that's why tillage has always been really relied on because it's a fantastic way to deal with weeds and also to mitigate potential vigor issues or anything else um the problem with that though is that it's whenever you turn your soil over you're basically exposing all of your soil to uv light it kills off a lot of microbes and then also in organic farming if it's good organics you're spending tons of resources between compost and cover crops and everything to really amend your soils. But then the moment you disc it, you just burn out all the organic matter that you're spending all this money to put back into it. Um, and so people like what most research has shown is that non-till is the absolute best way to actually um, preserve as much water in your system, like, cause you're increasing your actual organic matter. A 1% increase in organic matter, um, gets you almost 17,000 gallons per acre of additional water holding capacity. Um, and then what, what we've also found is we grow cover crops that um, in our non-till vineyards, uh, we've done this in one other vineyard as well, that are very specially suited to it. So it's basically a blend of short stature barley, um, a bunch of different clovers, and then a bunch of insectary, 30 different insectary flowers underneath that. And basically when the barley is ready to go into senescence, we come through with what's called a roller crimper. It was developed at the Rodale Institute back east for row crops, but we, I think we have the only four foot roller crimper in existence. Um, it was made by um, Amish company and then sold by a Mennonite company. Uh, so. <laughs> Hashtag farmers. Because <laughs> so, uh, the Amish guys couldn't drive the tractor to show how to I use don't it. Think, yeah. And the Amish guy couldn't sell it online. Oh, is that what it is? <laughs> so, uh, and, uh, <laughs> um, and so we basically go over and we roll down the crop. And so what that does is it creates a big, thick mulch layer over the soil. So that also retains water in the soil, shades the soil, and then it also suppresses weeds. And then what we found this year, and this is what's been the most incredible thing, is that we, in those rows, we didn't seed cover crops this year, and we have massive volunteer stands of barley and clover that have now permanently taken hold. And so we're essentially gonna just crimp it over itself again and again. And at that point, you're just essentially building topsoil because it gradually breaks down. Right. Um, and it's been, it's pretty fantastic to see. And I mean, I can't, it's obviously not particularly scientific, but I mean, we've been out at the vineyard the last couple of weeks and you just pull up clots of dirt and they're like, every clot has like 30 earthworms in it. I mean, yeah. which is a really, really good sign. Um, the vineyard has life. Yeah, and so and the then we're alive. and yeah. then we're also doing um, a thing out at Bedrock, and this is the really um, it, it's been a huge amount of labor this year. But instead of going through and um, hand hoeing or string trimming or cultivating under the vines, we've basically gone through and we've seeded all of the vine rows with an incredible amount of different clovers. And those clovers are now growing up at like two feet and they're suppressing all the other early weeds that would be coming up. And what we're gonna do, and it's gonna, not gonna look pretty, um, but we're just gonna let that clover naturally die out and then fall in on itself and create a natural living mulch over the soil. And then hopefully this clover, which seems to really be very adept at reseeding itself, particularly in the clay soils we've got at Bedrock, um, it'll just come up next year as well. So essentially that also helps from a labor perspective. Yeah. But it, it, what it also means is that we're essentially not 
touching the soil anymore, except for every eighth row, which we will um, do a small amount of cultivation on because we, we reseed that with a summer insectary blend. So, um, and that's- And just for everyone to know, an insectary row is, is bringing in beneficial. Yeah, so we basically, we seed it to a combination of buckwheat, phacelia, wild carrot, um, and sunflowers. And they basically, what it means sunflowers. is- Sunflowers. Sunflowers, um, which has been really cool. Yeah, right? <laughs> <laughs> I'm proud, <laughs> proud, pr- proud to be true I'm to my I'm surrounded here. <laughs> <laughs> um, but what that does is um, we have something flowering throughout the season. This was actually something developed by Miguel Altieri, who's an agroecologist at UC Berkeley. Um, and uh, basically it brings in a ton of beneficial insects. So when you're farming Zinfandel in particular, but organically in general, you have essentially zero insecticide options, so you really need to harness sort of the power of Mother Nature. And so by bringing in these insectary plants, um, we actually, our populations of things like six-spotted thrips and Gallandromus occidentalis and all these beneficial bugs that essentially eat spider mites and mealybugs and all these, you know, the, the common vineyard press, you're essentially creating population control so nothing actually can get, right. you, know, cl- you know, blown out of proportion. The problem with farming a monoculture a lot of the times is that you just have such intense insect predation because there's you've taken all the other flora that would house natural predators out of the you equation. destroyed the balance exactly I mean, you know the morgan makes fantastically balanced wines <laughs> uh but the balance in a good wine starts with the vineyard heck yeah you know. yeah totally. it really does if you don't have balanced in the vineyard you know it makes it much harder to get to this spot. I mean, the first ever line that I heard about cover crops and, and monocultures and vineyards was actually your dad saying the ultimate monoculture is is is, is a vineyard, and right. we need to break up that monoculture. Well, it's vineyard from Carneros or Calistoga, you yeah. know? Yep. Right. There's a problem in Carneros, and two years it's going to be in Calistoga. Yeah. Right. I mean, that's a re- I mean, we saw that in Sonoma Valley in the 1870s, because, you know, there's as much vines planted in that. Sonoma Valley as the rest of... <laughs> My dad told me. <laughs> <Okay>. um, <laughs> uh, there, there's vines. There's as many vines planted in Sonoma Valley in the 1870s as the entire rest of Sonoma County. So when Phylloxera hit, it just wiped out huh. Sonoma Valley, and it sort of took its time getting to some of these farther corners of the rest of the county, which is the reason why we have such old vineyards here in Sonoma Valley, because we were the first, first to replant plant. after Phylloxera. Uh, but I think that it is a really great sort of cautionary tale of what, you know, excessive monoculture can do. And so when you're driving through the tens of thousands of acres of almonds in the southern San Joaquin right now, right. you know, keep that in mind. Yeah. I just drove through that the other day. <laughs> I think we should, should we, should we try and wrap on a cautionary tale of don't grow, monocultures suck? Yeah. Historic Vineyard Society, April 21st, tasting <laughs> at right. Press Club. Oh, it's a good thing we have Chris here to Hooker remind house. us. Oh, and oh, we yeah, have a, a ta- oh, oh, we got oh yeah, we got to promote our business. That's right. <laughs> so, uh, shit, I knew we forgot. We are opening a tasting room in the town of Sonoma, which we never thought we'd do. Um, we had no desire to no do it. No desire to do it. Um, but which is how all great ideas are. Right, are exactly. Um, but sometimes they just come under the wire, you, right? Yeah, this was definitely a Morgan called me up after his stepmom saw this ad for the original Joseph Lee Hooker House, um, which um, originally planted, the original planters of Bedrock Vineyard were William Tecumseh Sherman and Joseph uh, Fighton Lee Hooker. Um, and his original 1852 salt box house came up for lease. Um, and much like we feel we're stewards, caretakers of the old live vineyards, we kind of felt an obligation to connect that house with a vineyard that Hooker, Joseph Lee Hooker planted. Um, so we're going to be opening sort of a very 
historically based tasting room. There's going to be a little curated room of history of Sonoma and and and. Do you and, do some sh- Chautauqua? Are you going to like be in character in a costume? Oh uh, my god, that would be yeah. yes. Maybe maybe <laughs> yes. just once in a, once in a while. I've always wanted him to get mutton of, chops. When I was a kid, I really wanted to be a Civil War reenactor. So like, you're actually like tugging at my yeah. heart here. But yeah, it's going to be open hopefully in the he's next. Have a large waistcoat, and <laughs> mutton chops. And he's going to be Another. swinging a gold he, watch. He has it in his closet. He's just waiting. Yes, yes. <laughs> this uh, this California is gonna be someplace in. Uh, um, and then, no, and then, no, and then we're just gonna stage fights between you and the guy that dresses up as Augustin Harris thing at Buena Vista. <laughs> so, I will take I you my down, money on Chris. Yeah, I will take you too. down. <laughs> But it's going to be a lovely place in a historic building with a lot of history. Like right off the plaza. It's right off the plaza. And what I will note is, so the reason why we got this incredible, beautiful little house is that the um, preservation society that had been using it for 30 years essentially had just gotten to the point where it wasn't particularly well-staffed, it wasn't well-financed. It was, I mean, it's closed all the time. It was open three hours a week, if that. And so... Um, what I'm really excited about, because I have very fond memories of going to Hooker House as a student. In fact, I think when we were at Vintage Country Day, one of the Montessori school in third, fourth, and fifth grade, <laughs> um, you know, one of the day trips was walking to walking the Mishing and walking to the yeah. Hooker House. Um, so Do I remember that? No. No. <laughs> um, the, you know, so we're actually working with them to continue to create a bit of an exhibit in that house. Um, as part of it, and then hopefully we can also maybe direct some more traffic to some of the other um, historic sites that they actually keep open around the city of Sonoma. So hopefully it'll be beneficial for the Preservation Society, and then also the house, you know, had a lot of deferred maintenance and a lot of other stuff, so we've poured a lot of resources into it, and um, we're really, really excited. It's is, there time- a, is there a timeline? So we're hoping to be open at the end of this month. Oh, wow. Um, and well, I mean, yeah. Yeah, end of this month, yeah. All right. We'll and s- it's, we'll it, see you guys in June. Yeah. <laughs> Precisely. <Sonoma. laughs> Said by a man who's open to tasting <laughs> room before. It is Sonoma. Fourth of it, July, it is, yeah. party at Benrock. Oh, boy. Fourth of July is going to be off the hook at that place. Um, so, um, yeah, so, you know, it's going to be by appointment only to start. And we really want to make sure we're, we're doing it right. And the beautiful thing, what I'm so excited about is that we're really able to pour great resources into it. And also the people that we have working there are fantastic. Um, uh, for Chris and I, I think it's a bit of a scary thing because until now, every call or email to Bedrock comes to one of the two of us. Right. So now, you know, we're somehow seeding a bit of the public face. And so if that's going to happen, it's really important that it's done well. Um, but then, you know, I think that it's going to be, yeah, it's going to be pretty cool. If history nerds, wine nerds, it's going to be pretty cool. Yeah. Like I said, Morgan, when you came, when we asked you to come on, I wanted to talk about history. So this has been great. So thank you very much. Oh, it's my pleasure. I'm, you know, I think we've only hit the tip of the iceberg. Yeah. I think we're going to have to do this (laughs) weekly, monthly, quarterly, some sort of visit with the bedrock guys. Uh Oh, I mean, it's no Bill Simmons interviewing Kevin Durant uh, six times, but, <laughs> but we can get there. You sell yourself yeah. short, and you're not as angry. Bill Simmons, Katie's angry. Yeah, he's kind of angry. Yeah. Right. I want to see them in the playoffs. I'm oh. looking forward to it. Yeah. All right. Go Dubs. Oh, yeah. No, I think we're. I think we're wrapped. I think we're wrapped. Yeah, so awkward. Awkward outro. Uh, this has been the winemakers with. And let us know how we can get oh, right. everyone. Oh yeah. How do we uh, look up uh, Morgan? Chris, how do we find you? How do we find your wines? Bedrockwineco.com. We're, we're huge on Google. Uh, bedrockwineco.com. Uh, under dash the dash wire.com. Um, Instagram, Bedrock Morgan. 
Chris under T Wire mm-hmm. under T Wire on Instagram. Give us a call if you call the winery. My cell phone rings. So for now, I so. love that. <laughs> so. I, hate it, but I love it. I love it. Because yeah. uh, that's not your phone ringing <laughs> anymore. Exactly. Yeah. And Bart, how do we get hold of you? Uh, DaneSellers.com. Yeah. Uh, Shannon Blanc uh, just went out to wine club members. Uh, it's uh, we're working on that. It takes a long time for me to write a l- newsletter, I uh, feel yeah. especially when you spend all your time at Squaw Valley, which used to be what I used to do. Now I have a job. All right. My, wait a minute, my one day. He's being a good father, Sam. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I'm I'm grapes with a view. This sixteen six hundred, but as we went over, that's hard to spell and hard to remember. So just find me. Thank you for having boom. us. Thanks for coming. This is a lot of fun. Yeah. Yeah. Right on.